Good evening, Desert Springs. As Chase said, I'm the new guy here on staff. Um, if you're curious about my name, I'll tell you it again. My name's Alex Schroeder, um, but if you want to call me the new guy, that's fine as well. Uh, it's a joy to get to gather with you all tonight, and it's an even greater joy to get to gather around his word. So I'm looking forward to our night where we get to reflect upon the wonderful, powerful work of Christ on behalf of sinners like you and me. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. And while you're turning there, let's consider a little bit of the background of this book of Hebrews. This book is likely written to a church of Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians were experiencing tremendous persecution because of their choice to follow Jesus and give full allegiance to him. When I say these Jewish Christians, what I'm referring to are people who are ethnically Jewish, but have trusted in Jesus as Messiah and forsaken the faith of their fathers and turned to trust in him. And even though trusting and following Jesus is the greatest choice that any of us could ever make, often it can come with challenges. And these Christians were very familiar with these challenges. We won't look at this verse closely, but in chapter 10 of this book, the author alludes to a moment that these Christians had experienced in their lives. The moment he alludes to sounds like this. These Christians were in prison, and others in the church, out of love and service to their imprisoned brothers, went to prison to check on them. And while they were at prison, providing service and love for their brothers and sisters, their property was plundered. So think about this circumstance. Some of the church is in prison, and the other church perhaps is in fear or concern of what might happen to them. But rather than be concerned and fearful, they go and show service and care to their brothers and sisters. And in so doing, all of their property is ransacked. And in a climate like that, with those kinds of pressures, what might the thoughts be that creep into the mind of a Christian? What thoughts might Satan tempt believers with? Perhaps we could imagine them. What have I done in following this Jesus? Is it really worth it? Perhaps it's better to just go back to the ways of my mom and dad and grandparents and stay Jewish. There's a lot of similarities and the biggest benefit, it seems, in a worldly way would be that I wouldn't be persecuted for it. My property wouldn't be destroyed. And with an audience thinking thoughts like this, being tempted with temptations like this, the author of the book of Hebrews has one singular message to the church. Jesus is worth embracing these kinds of persecutions. Following Jesus is better than forsaking Jesus, even in light of temptations and struggles and challenges like this. And so his application that he repeats constantly through the book is brothers and sisters, do not lose heart. Do not go back. Do not return. Keep trusting. Keep going. Keep pressing toward the goal of following Jesus. And so that's perhaps why, if you've ever heard a summary of the book of Hebrews, 
or a theme sentence for this book, it's that Jesus is better. Because that's the author's point. Jesus is better than anything. He's worth following in in light of persecution. And so if there's anything that I hope you hear from me tonight, I hope there's several, but if there's anything in particular that would stand out to you, brothers and sisters, it's that Jesus is worth continuing trusting. He's worth continuing to follow. He's worth trusting to the end. Do not give up. Do not walk away. Do not turn back. And what a beautiful message, right, from God's word for us as we come to the table, as we take the family meal, we remind ourselves who Christ is and we remind ourselves, let's keep pressing on with his grace. So as I mentioned, our passage tonight is Hebrews chapter 9. I'll begin reading in verse 23. I'd love for you to follow along with me. You can do that in your own Bible or it will be on the screen behind me. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places year after year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Our passage tonight shows us three ways that Jesus and his work is better than the the work of the Old Testament priests. So this will be our outline this evening. We'll see first that Jesus has better access to God. Second, we'll see that Jesus offers a better sacrifice. And finally, we'll see that Jesus leaves us with, better, with a better promise. So let's consider our first point, better access. What I mean by this first point is that Jesus possesses access to God that is unfounded by anyone ever throughout any point of history. And even more than that chosen lineage within the family of Israel, the the Levites. The people that were meant to represent God to the people and people to God. Jesus has better access to the throne of God than them. Look with me in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Arthur begins with an interesting contrast here. He's contrasting these heavenly things and these copies of heavenly things. What is he talking about? Well, the author actually has used this pattern of comparison over and over again throughout the book. And for us, since we're jumping into one passage, we don't get to see this pattern repeated as much as we would if we had read it from beginning to now. But the whole book of Hebrews 
is based on these ideas of types and their fulfillment. What do I mean by a type? A type is an institution, a person, an office, a thing from the Old Testament that is found in the New Testament, except it corresponds in the New Testament. It's escalated and it's more important and more significant and more meaningful and it's fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Excuse me. And we see these all over the place. We see a type of a messenger that brings the law. Jesus is the greater messenger that brings the law. We see that Jesus is a greater prophet. He's a greater priest. He brings greater rest. There's a greater heavenly city that we're waiting for. There's greater sacrifices. All of these types repeated over and over again. And in chapters 8 and 9, the type that we're focusing on has to do with the dwelling place of God. If we were to begin in chapter 8 and read this argument that the author's making, we would see that he's focusing on the tabernacle. This tent that God had instructed Moses and the people of Israel to construct while they were wandering in the wilderness. And as I've mentioned, these types are fulfilled, escalated, made greater and more glorious in the ministry of Jesus. So what is the type that we're getting? What's the point of this type in this comparison? Well, what was the tabernacle for? The tabernacle was explicitly made so that God would dwell with his people. And so God's people could meet with God. That's what it was for, that God could be among his people, be with them. And what we find is that this tabernacle is a copy. It's a shadow. It's insufficient. And isn't that a great picture for us? Shadows? Because we understand in life that shadows can communicate some truth. Not all truth, but some truth. There's times where shadows accurately reflect the outline, the silhouette of someone. But then we've also been fooled by shadows too, haven't we? Perhaps you as a child played that game where you would contort your fingers in such a way and the light would shine just right so that what was simply your fingers would look like a bunny or an elephant or an eagle flying. Shadows communicate some truth, but they're not perfect. They're not totally trustworthy. And in a similar way, the tabernacle was where God would dwell with his people, but it wasn't the fullest expression of God's presence. It wasn't the most glorious way that God would be amongst his people. It provided access for God's people, but not unhindered, not unadulterated access. The full access of God is not reflected in the tabernacle. And so Jesus enters a greater place and has greater access to God. Verse 23 tells us something more about this, though. It's actually an interesting detail. Look with me back in verse 23. The earthly copies needed purification. And this would make sense to us, right? They're constructed by sinful human hands. They're occupied by sinful humans entering in. But it also mentions that the heavenly places need purification. It's an interesting point and an interesting question. I think we find the answer to, to what's going on there in verse 24. So let's keep reading. Verse 24. For Christ has entered. Now if we read that phrase alone, we would think Jesus sounds like just one of those old priests in the Old Testament. Because don't those priests enter the dwelling place of God? 
They do, daily. And every now and then, once a year, they get to enter that most holy place. But so far, all our author has told us is that Jesus does what the other priests do. But there's more, let's keep reading, right? For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, not into those copies of the true things. So now we see a contrast. Jesus does what those other priests did, but not quite. He does something greater. He doesn't enter the tabernacle, the shadow. So where does he enter? He enters, in verse 24, into heaven itself. The full access of God. The true, full expression of God's glorious presence. Christ enters into. This begs a question. Why is Jesus able to do this? Hebrews provides an answer for us. Earlier in the book, in chapter 7, Jesus is described this way. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest. Well, what kind of high priest is it? He's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners. And he's exalted in the heavens. Why is Jesus granted greater access? Because he lived a greater life of obedience to God and his commands. Jesus is the only sinless, the only morally pure man, and he is granted full access to the living God. And as we consider this, there's one detail we miss when we just read it quickly and we read it in a a, a translation. This phrase is beautiful, that Jesus enters into the presence of God. If we were to translate it more literally, we would see that Jesus enters to face God face to face. He appears before God with nothing hindering him, no veil like in that tabernacle, no hand covering a rock. He sees him face to face. And this should draw us back to a story in the Old Testament when another prophet, another priest, another leader of God's people begged and pleaded God to let him see God with unfiltered, unhindered presence. And what is that story I'm referring to? It's Moses. Right? Do you remember this in Exodus 33 when Moses pleads with the Lord and he says, please show me your glory. And as Moses asks that question, we're left realizing if we're reading the story of the Bible, no one's asked this yet. How will God respond to such a request? God tells him, Moses, this is not for you to see. You cannot enter my presence. It's not for you. In fact, God says this to him, you cannot see my face. And yet Jesus appears face to face with God. Full access. This presence of God is restricted from Moses, and it's actually a mercy to Moses. God goes on to say that man shall not see my face and live. 
God says, Moses, this isn't for you. And if it were, it would destroy you. And yet, our high priest enters the full access of God right into his presence and stands face to face and sees full glory of God. He's accepted before him. What a high priest that we have. But before we move on from this point, there's one final phrase in verse 24 that we have to consider, church. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true cell, or the true, um, the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Why does, God, why does Christ enter into this glorious presence of God? It's not to gloat about his holiness. It's not to chat up with God and catch up with him. It's to represent sinners. It's for you. This is why Jesus enters into God's presence. And this is why I think we need this purification That's why Jesus comes bringing a better sacrifice. It's not that Jesus needs the sacrifice for himself, or it's not that the presence of God is defiled and needs to be purified. It's that Jesus comes to plead for sinners to be able to come into that same presence. And I wonder, in a room this size, how many of you have thought that you would never be able to be accepted by God? Maybe even you've trusted in Christ. You call him Lord, and that's still an aspect of your faith that's hard for you to wrap your mind around. Really? Me? And all of my failure and all of my weakness and all of my shortcomings and all of my blundering and returning to sin, God would love me? Well, if you're asking those questions, you have to answer them with this verse in mind. Jesus goes into heaven and makes purification, not for himself, but for who? For you. And so if you're struggling with that kind of question, could God accept me? The answer is Jesus knew that he would be accepting sinners. And he goes into God's presence to make a way for sinners like you and me. And so if you're struggling with how could I be accepted, the only answer you have is because Christ made purification for you. And that answers your question. It nullifies it. And it makes your question, not to be disrespectful to you, but it makes it silly, doesn't it? Jesus' purification is enough for sinners like you and me. Maybe there's even some of you that have never trusted in Christ. And you're under the presumption that the way that you come to the Lord is actually by cleaning your life up first. You've got to fix the messes in your life. You've got to fix your anger and your outburst. You've got to fix all of your idolatry and your cussing and whatever else you might think hinders you from the Lord. Can I just encourage you that you're wrong? You're not expected to clean your life up. Jesus made purification so that you can come to him as you are. And what a promise we have in John 6, verse 37, when Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So come to him.
Come to him. I love this from, this is written by a pastor from the 1600s named John Bunyan. He's known most for his book, Pilgrim's Progress, but he also wrote a number of other books. And there's one book that he has where he lists out this, this interaction between a sinner and the promises of Christ. And I wonder if this sounds like you. But I'm a great sinner, you, you'll say, and Christ will say back, I'll never cast you out. But I'm an old sinner. I'll never cast you out. I'm a hard-hearted sinner. I'll never cast you out. But I'm a backsliding sinner. I'll never cast you out. But I've served Satan all of my days. I'll never cast you out. But I've sinned against the light. But I'll never cast you out. I've sinned against mercy. But I'll never cast you out. But I have no good thing to bring with me. Jesus responds just like he has the whole time. I'll never cast you out. Brothers and sisters, we have a high priest who advocates and represents sinners like us before the throne of heaven. And he will never cast out us as we come to him. What a promise. He stands now, as Hebrews 7 says, he always lives to to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. He's making intercession for you. And so if you've sinned today, Jesus is pleading for your forgiveness. If you're doubting the Lord's love and goodness, Jesus is praying for grace to help you. He represents you when you're faced with temptations, and he represents you before the Lord when you're suffering in this broken world. So brothers and sisters, we can boldly sing that song we're so familiar with. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. And what's the plea? Is it that we've done enough? Is it we're good enough? No, this is the plea. There's a great high priest whose name is love, and he ever lives and pleads for me. And if you've trusted in Christ, use the personal pronouns, me. He pleads for you. Believe that, trust that, find your joy in that this this evening, brothers and sisters. Jesus has greater access to the Father. Jesus also offers a better sacrifice. Look at me in verse 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We see that the sacrifice is better because of the frequency at which it's offered. Once. Okay, once a day. No. Once a year. That, there's a lot of sins that need to be covered up, and once a year seems like a, a lot of sins for one sacrifice. No. How about once a lifetime for every Christian? No. One time for all. Once for all. Jesus is not in the business of regular bloodshed like those Levitical priests that entered every day and walked out with blood-stained robes constantly, incessantly, never-ending sacrifices. Jesus died once for all. Jesus offers the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And when that sacrifice is offered, 
every drop and ounce of wrath is totally gone for his people. All of God's wrath, every bit of it is poured out on that sacrifice. You know how products are new and improved? Jesus' sacrifice was new and improved. But the beauty of his new and improved sacrifice is it's not like those products that after time get old and obsolete. Jesus' new and improved is forever sufficient. Always. And it will never be replaced. It will never be redone. And it will never be rendered ineffective for sinners. It's always enough. It's once for all. All people, all time, always. The sacrifice was enough. And if you're trusting in Christ, it was enough for you and for your sin. Praise God. But the sac- this passage doesn't just tell us about the frequency of the sacrifice. It also tells us the identity of it, doesn't it? And I've alluded to this already, and you're coming in, I'm assuming, knowing that already. The beauty of the work of Christ is he's both the high priest that offers the sacrifice and the Lamb of God itself. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the high priest who has access to God and he is the all-sufficient, wrath-absorbing, once-for-all, sacrifice-to-end-all-other-sacrifices-sacrifice. This is incredible. And what was the sacrifice for? What does verse 26 tell us? But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. To put it away. To remove it from you. So it's no longer on your record. It's no longer on your account. This is what Jesus came to do. Many might try and say Jesus came to do something else. Some might say he was to be a good teacher and teach on these moral principles of love. Not according to Hebrews 9 and the rest of the Bible. Others might say he was to be a miracle worker, so therefore we should seek to perform these miracles and such things. Not according to Hebrews 9. Others say he's a cultural renegade that was trying to overthrow the powers that be of the day and age. Not according to Hebrews 9. What was Jesus for? What did he do? What was the sacrifice for? To put away sins once for all. He put it away because his sacrifice was atoning and it was substitutionary. We cannot talk about his sacrifice without getting those two words. It was atoning. What does that word mean? It means that it removes wrath. It satisfies wrath and removes it away. It's gone. And it was substitutionary, meaning it took the place of someone. And whose place did it take? Anyone and everyone who would confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Christ is Lord and raised from the dead. If you believe that, all of God's wrath is poured out, not on you, but on the Son, hanging on the cross in our place. So brothers and sisters, take heart. Jesus put away all of your sin. All of God's anger for sinners is no longer directed toward you. So what's left toward you? God's love and only his love. 
only his love for you. And if we believe this deeply, this impacts how we reflect on every moment of our lives. What are the things that make bad days? Sometimes cataclysmic things that are life-shaking. Other times it's just that regular, consistent drop of annoyance and unexpected things happening. It's the discouragements, the disappointments that just keep coming. And as all of those things happen, it's really easy for us to get discouraged and disappointed. And yet, we do not reflect often that God loves us. And how do we know that he loved us? Because that sacrifice was freely given. So that, if we believe this, this changes how we interpret every single moment of our lives. No more wrath. No more wrath. No disappointment, no diagnosis, no, no unmet expectation in your life is from an angry, upset, wrathful God, but instead is his love for you. Romans 8.32, one of the sweetest promises I know in the Bible, says that he who did not spare his only son but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God did the hardest thing in sacrificing Christ, and it happened. So how will God withhold any other good thing from us? And when we believe these truths, when we believe that wrath is totally gone for us, every moment of our lives is reinterpreted with the loving care of a heavenly father. This is the blessing of being adopted as a child of God that we're given through the work of our priest and our sacrifice. And finally, the better promise that Jesus leaves us with. There's a beautiful thing about the work of Christ It happened in the past, it's ongoing today, and there's more still to come. He died on the cross for our sins. He currently lives to intercede for us, and yet we're not done. There's more still to come. Look with me in verse 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Verse 27 begins with describing the simplicity of our lives. We live once and we will die and we will face judgment. It's simple. This certainly refutes and undermines any presumption that might be made about something like reincarnation. Life is simple. We live and we die and then it's over. We live in response to the, or we, we have an afterlife in response to the judgment we receive. And in a similar way, Christ will die once. Similar to how you and I will die once, Christ will die once. And so, as we consider that Jesus will come back again, He will not come again to do anything with atoning for sin. Why? Because he's already done it. 
So this actually leaves us with some urgency, doesn't it? If your sins are not covered by the blood of the Lamb of God, there's not going to be hope for you when he comes again. The work to satisfy God's wrath towards sin has been accomplished, and you are either trusting in it or you're not. And waiting for Christ to return for some is a horrifying thing. But for those who trust in Jesus, we wait for it eagerly. Oh, it's the sweetest thing, and we're ready for it. But I wonder as you read this, if there's an interesting thing that happens in your mind that happened in mine. So I think Jesus says he's coming to save those who are trusting in him. But I thought I was already saved when I believed in Jesus. Didn't when I prayed that prayer, walked that aisle, confessed my sins, trusted in Jesus, wasn't that when I was saved? Why am I still waiting to be saved? Well, the answer is yes to both of those things. We are saved in a moment when we put our faith in Jesus, and there's a future saving we're still waiting for. And you know that experientially, I'm certain. Your flesh is still tempted towards sin. There's still a greater salvation we're waiting for where sin is totally removed from us. We're still living in a world where Satan prowls around like a roaring lion waiting to devour us. And we still live in a world that hates God and hates his people and seeks to undo us. We battle three great enemies, ourselves, our, fl- our flesh, the world, and the devil. And we are waiting for a salvation that will totally and completely defeat all three of these enemies of us. And we are promised that Christ will come and bring a salvation that renders those three things completely powerless, completely defeated. Brothers and sisters, do you reflect often on the reality that Jesus is going to come back? I'm convicted as I read this verse that it's assumed believers are eagerly waiting for Christ to return. And how easy it is for us to not reflect on this glorious truth. But let those three things, the regular battle of sin that you were fighting as a Christian, remind you that there's greater saving and that there's sure promises that guarantee that that saving will happen and we're waiting for Jesus to come. That makes you eager. When you look at a world that hates the Lord, and we have so much questions about, is it getting worse? How much faster is it getting worse? All these things that we're seeing, right? Let that draw you to say, Lord, we're waiting for a greater salvation. Bring Jesus, please. And when we find ourselves continually tempted and fought against by spiritual battles and a devil that wants to devour us, may we be drawn to say, I want Christ to return. This will leave us in a place of preparing. And I would suggest you you don't prepare for this like a child preparing for Christmas. Children preparing for Christmas just get, get excited and sit there and keep talking about it, right? Like 364 days early. They're like, can't wait for next Christmas. Prepare for it like an adult going on a significant trip. There's work you've got to do beforehand. There's preparations for us. We've got to make plans. 
We've got to get ready. You've got to go get your passport. You've got to make arrangements. You've got to pack your bags. You're going to talk about it to the people that you're around, your bosses and your coworkers. We make arrangements for the coming day of the Lord like that. We think about it. We long for it. We prepare. We get ready. We look forward to it. And what will that day be like for those who trust in Jesus? I want to draw your mind back to that picture we saw earlier of Jesus entering into God's presence. You might remember that there was another, Moses, who tried to get the very same access to God, and he was told, no, Moses, this will kill you and utterly and completely destroy you. Man cannot see me and live. But do you know what 1 John 3 says the day of the Lord will be like for Christians? Listen to this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we will see him as he is. What was warning and judgment to Moses that would utterly destroy him? The danger to Moses, for those who trust in Christ, is a glorious inheritance that we look forward to. The access, that unhindered, unfiltered, face-to-face access that Jesus alone has, we will be given because we've trusted in him. We'll see him face-to-face. And it won't be a threat to us, but instead we will sound like the psalmist in Psalm 16, verse 11, when he says, in your presence there's fullness of joy, not threat of destruction fullness of joy. There's at your right hand, there will be pleasures forevermore, not danger. We look forward to this day, eagerly anticipating that Christ's promises are true and he'll come back to save us and he'll bring us into the very same access with God that he has. What a glorious truth. What a beautiful work of Jesus that he's the high priest that has the best access ever. He offers the greatest sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice to end all sacrifices, and he's coming again. And the drumbeat that just keeps being hit over and over and over again through this passage is that it's for you who trust in Jesus. The work of Christ is for you, And it's sure. Praise God. Take comfort in this. Brothers and sisters, keep going. Keep trusting. Don't turn away. There is nothing else this glorious. There's nothing else this sure. Keep going. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this better work of your son Jesus. And even as we consider that word better, it feels not significant enough. It feels like it is, it is the best work. It is a perfect work. God, we thank you for this work. May we trust more in this priest. May we trust more in his sacrifices and may we long more for the promise of his return. 
Father, work in us. Remove from us feelings of inadequacy and guilt and instead comfort us because of what Christ has done and give us eager hearts that wait for him with joy and hope. We pray this in his name. Amen.